Look at you warriors. You survived time change. Way to go. And slippery roads. And so thank you for making it here today. I'm, I'm glad you, you really found God's word worth going out this morning. So well done. Looking forward to studying with you this morning. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4 in just a minute. If you're new here, welcome. And we're working through a study called E2E, Eternity to Eternity. And we're working through the book of Exodus right now. I'd love to dive into it with you, but let's pray first before we do that. Would you join me? Lord God, I thank you for the time that we can be together this morning. Um, Beautiful, warm building, great place to hang out with other people and to learn about you, especially, God, to be encouraged, but also to know more about who you are and who we are to you. So we pray that you would accomplish that right now through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would work through your revealed word and help us to understand it so that we can affect the lives of other people, we can engage with other people about the things that relate to you. We pray for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. I ask you to imagine this with me for a moment. Day after day, sunrise to sunset, you make clay. And you take the clay and you put it in molds. You fire the clay, out comes bricks, and you stack bricks. All day long, sunrise to sunset, it's all you've known your entire life. At the same time, you're not getting paid for this. The crack of the whip on your back constantly reminds you that there's a taskmaster over you who sees you as nothing more than an animal. And your life is torture and toil. You are a brick-making slave in ancient Egypt. We learned last week in Exodus chapter 2 that God saw those individuals and He focused on them. I want you to look with me on the screen at this, Exodus 2.23. Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came from slavery, came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I don't know if you picked up the notes on the way in this morning. There's some Hebrew words in the notes that were out in the atrium. Rada, yada, two words. They're not going to go on the screen. I just want you to hear them. They represent this little phrase that's going to go on the screen for you from verse 25. God saw and God knew. Rada yada. Rada means to discern. It's not this that God is seeing. You and I see things, but God sees and then He discerns. Rada, but then yada. Yada means to have understanding. There's one thing to see it. It's another thing to understand. And so we see that God saw and perceived and He absolutely understood So he's not just looking, there's an intimate awareness and an understanding of their situation. Just like he sees you right now. God sees you and knows you intimately. Rada, yada, he knows what's going on in your life, he perceives it, he understands it. So what Moses discovered for sure is that God has not neglected and God has not forgotten these people, even though he's had a very brief encounter to this point. We're going to get more in depth to the encounter now. Verse 7, 
The Lord said from chapter 3, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. But even greater than that, even greater than the yada rada that He sees and He understands, what we learn next is that God has actually a plan and He plans to intervene and part of His plan is referred to in verse 8. So, I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come up to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. It's a clarification for you. This will be especially helpful if you're new to the Bible or not real familiar with it. When you see anthropomorphisms in Scripture, recognize that when they're associated with God, there's an explanation behind why the writers say, God saw, God heard, God knew, God came down. Those are anthropomorphisms for this reason. We're taking human terms that we would use freely on our planet, and we've attached them to God. And the reason that has to be done is because that's the only frame of reference that we have. So you and I, for instance, when we hear something, we're confused how God can hear something else. Like how can He hear my prayer and somebody from South America and somebody from China at the same time? Or God coming down, does that mean He left heaven? Well, those are anthropomorphisms. They're things that are attached to God in human terms to help us to understand. They're used because it gives us a sense of how to grasp Him, but there's a danger in it. When we use human terms to attach them to God, we begin thinking that God has spatial limitations as though a physical being has spatial limitations. When you see something in front of you, you can't see something behind you. But Scripture says God is spirit. He's not limited by flesh. You and I are limited by flesh. God is not limited in any way. So these terms that are used here, they're not meant to imply that God has any limitations whatsoever. Now, that's just a clarification. On a a larger view, I have absolutely no doubt when I'm reading this that Moses is fully dialed in as he works through this dialogue with God, especially when they get to verse 10. And God says in verse 10, "'Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh.'" so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt." I'm guessing right at this moment there was probably a very long pause on Moses' part. This might be the longest recorded wait what moment in recorded history. What did you say? Wait? You'll see that come out in just a moment. God has just clarified for Moses, my people are trapped in bondage, and I've got a solution. You're the solution, Moses. You're going to lead them out. Watch verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I is code for, I got nothing. I'm a nobody. This is actually one of five objections you're going to find Moses make in the next couple minutes. And you know, I've noticed, I've done this in my own life, we all do this to some degree. Moses is looking at himself, and he's evaluating his own personal capacity. Now, my observation is this, this is a huge change in Moses. 
This is not the young buck that we saw previously. This is not the powerful prince of Egypt. Apparently, these 40 years of shepherding have somehow extinguished the fire that was in his belly. Church, hear this, because this applies to you. What Moses thinks of his capabilities, what he thinks of himself, or for that matter, what others might think of him, really is not important when it comes to the things of God. What you think of your own abilities, what you think of your own incapacities is not the deciding factor of what God can do through you. Some here this morning have experienced the prompting of God in your life. And perhaps when God has prompted you to do things, you thought you can't do what God has asked you to do. I'm here to remind you this morning, it's not you. It's about God working through you. You only have to be the instrument through which God is going to work. One of the amazing components of the book of Exodus as you work through the story is you're going to see this individual that God's working through. He's working through a man who is intensely aware of his own defects. But you should notice something as you're working through it. Are you noticing what's not being said? Always when you read through Scripture, try and read between lines of the things that you think maybe that would have been said, or maybe I've got questions about what isn't stated. Well, here's what's not stated. Moses, come on, you're the grandson of Pharaoh. Moses, come on, you were raised in the palace. God doesn't use any of those things to inspire Moses. All the capacity that Moses needs is exactly found in verse 12, and it's the same capacity available to you. Look with me, verse 12, and He said, certainly, I will be with you. That's what Jesus committed to us. I am with you always. Jesus said, even to the end of the age, Hebrews 11, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I am with you. So Exodus 3, Paul or Moses is reminded, I'm going to be the one who's doing this, Moses. Now, we're only 12 verses into chapter 3, and already we've seen three massive biblical truths. First one, God is active in the affairs of mankind, and He is very concerned about us. And number two, God's purposes will be accomplished. And number three, God does work through flawed human beings. Let's go back into verse 12 now. And He said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Uh, make no mistake whatsoever, God's priority in rescuing humans results in worship. God's priority in rescuing you is that you would worship God. It's the same thing in the Old Testament. It is the natural, normal response to God's intervention in our life. So that's why God says, you're going to come out and you're going to worship me at this mountain because of the rescue that I'm going to provide for you. Now, where this goes next is a colossal question from Moses to God. Let's move forward. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Whether or not you're new to the Bible, you should note this. This question was never asked by Noah. It was never asked by Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even Joseph. 
They never asked this question. And what you find in Exodus chapter 3 is that God's response to that question is going to clarify for all of humanity exactly who the God of the Bible is. And ultimately, it's going to refocus Moses. But for a moment, let's just stay with Moses' question. I've learned that you can learn as much from a question as you can about from the answer. So let's look at the way that Moses actually asked this question. Verse 13, you see this on the screen, then Moses said to God, behold, I am going. Now, in the Hebrew language, you could just as easily take the word behold and trade it for another word. It's not a word we typically use in our modern day, right? You, you won't go home this week or you won't go home this afternoon or perhaps to the office and, and say to someone in your social circle, behold, I'm going to the store, right? Not going to use it. This particular word as it's used here actually has multiple ways it can be used, and so you have to look at context. So behold in this case actually means suppose. Let's just say that I'm going to go to the children of Israel. That's the way Moses is actually phrasing it here. Let's say that I do this. Now remember context. The Hebrew slaves are back in Egypt and they're dealing with torture day in and day out, making bricks day after day. Little do they know that on the other side of the Red Sea, one of their own is in a conversation with the Ancient of Days. Now back on Mount Sinai, Moses is engaged in this conversation, and the bush is still burning without being consumed. Moses is still barefoot, and I assume at this point he's still hiding his face. But the conversation has shifted. Moses has a genuine problem. It's a problem you might be facing this morning. His problem is so common that humans encounter it every single day, and this common is, this problem is this issue. He lacks understanding of God. He lacks knowledge about God. So he literally says to God, what do I tell them about you? If you don't know what to say when people bring up God questions in your life and you find yourself backing out of the conversation, you should know you're in really good company because that's exactly where Moses finds himself at first. Because we understand that taking a, a position on faith matters and understanding where we're at is incredibly threatening. And so we don't do it lightly and you want to enter into it confidently. Now for perspective, in the Middle East when you ask what someone's name is, you're actually asking for a desire to know their nature. Name to them has a much deeper significance than it does to us in the West. With us, it's just a tag. Here in the West, we identify somebody and we, we recognize them, but we don't associate it with their character. But to the ancients, it actually speaks of the character, something very distinctive about that one. So when Moses asks, what is your name, he's asking this, what kind of a God are you? because there's multiple gods in Egypt that are worshiped all the time, gods with small g. Verse 14 is God's response. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And He said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. But that's exactly how it reads in the English language. 
which to my 12-year-old mind was very, very confusing as a boy, trying to figure out, what is that? I bet it's confusing to many today, and it's still confusing to me. As a matter of fact, much more learned individuals than me have spent a great deal of time and energy trying to understand exactly what's being stated here. I am that I am, or I am who I am. In the Hebrew language, is pronounced far differently than in the English language. I want to put it on the screen for you so that you see the way that it's used here. Eyah, Eshur, Eyah. I shall be that I shall be. But that doesn't translate too well into English. I am that I am is hard enough. I shall be that I shall be sounds like he's going to be something in the future, but I thought he existed now. How do I put these pieces together? Eyah, Eshur, Eyah means I exist, therefore I exist. Well, does that really answer Moses' question? The ancients actually took this phrase, Eyah, Eshur, Eyah, and they boiled it down to a phrase that they tried so hard to grasp, but yet they didn't want to pronounce it. Yet this is the best way they came up with it. You see this next slide and you're familiar with Yahweh which means the eternal or the, the self-existent one. But that phrase by the ancients was considered way too holy to pronounce or let alone write. I have a Hebrew Bible in my office, and if you looked at it, it's open to this page right now today, and if you found Exodus 3 and 4, you would find that word, Yahweh, doesn't even get printed in the Bible, in the ancient Hebrew text because they considered it too holy to pronounce. So they boiled it down to what you see on this next slide, just four letters, Y-H-W-H, to represent Yahweh, removing all of the vowels so that no one would accidentally say the name of God out loud, let alone write it. Then it appears in your Bible today in an English translation as Lord with a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, removing all the vowels from the ancient text, that's the best they could do, was boil it down. And here's what it stems from. It stems from this understanding that God exists all by Himself. He is the uncreated Creator who is not dependent upon anything. Therefore, He says, I am who I am. He is the eternally self-existent one. Now contrast that to yourself. I have a birth certificate. My birth certificate says that I was born in Muskegon County at Hackley Hospital. Dr. Harriman delivered me, and there's an actual time that's stamped on there. I will someday, somebody will issue a death certificate because I have a beginning and I have an end. The same is true for you. But if you could travel back in time, before the beginning, this will make your brain hurt. He's already there. Before time began, I am. I already exist. So there's never been a beginning. There's never been an ending. God cannot go out of existence because going out of existence would be to essentially die, and there's no dying with God because dying is weakness, and there's no weakness in God. So astoundingly, there is this stupendous conversation 
when you come to John chapter 8 in the New Testament with Jesus talking with some Pharisees. I included this because I wanted you to see how Jesus used this exact same name. Look with me at John 8, 53. This is the Pharisees accusing Jesus, surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, I glorify myself. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. If I say that I do not know Him, I will be a liar like you." Yeah, Jesus was that confrontational. But I do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. What? And the very next verse says that they got so excited, they ran right over and shook his hand and said, wow, this is fantastic. No. No, they picked up boulders, stones. Because not only did someone dare to say Yahweh, he said he is Yahweh. Thus they wanted to take him out. How does knowing the name of God help us today? How does it help us in our circumstances? We need to know what the slaves in Egypt needed to know. What does that name mean in my circumstance? In their case, we know that they're crying out for help, so naturally they're going to want to know what type of help is he going to be? But rather than answering that just yet, there's more coming from God. Go with me to verse 15. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. You know what a revealed name does for you, church? A revealed name allows for intimacy. Once you have someone's name, it opens up the conversation. Let's say as you look across the auditorium, you see individuals you don't know this morning, and you decide, hey, when I get to the atrium and I grab a coffee and a cookie, I'd like to talk to that person. Very likely, you're not going to walk up to them and say, hey, human. <laughs> Rather, you're going to ask for the name. What does the name do? The name allows, it, it reveals. The name allows for intimacy, and it opens up the opportunity for a deeper relationship. Like, so where are you from? Tell me something about yourself. What are your characteristics? Who are your parents? It tells you a lot about an individual. So linked is the person of Yahweh and the name Yahweh that you find them interchangeably used throughout the Bible. So God says, my name? is actually a memorial name. And when you utter the mighty acts that I do, when you speak of the deeds that I do throughout all generations, you're going to link my name with my actions. And here's an example of it. It comes from Exodus chapter 15. 
when they crossed the Red Sea. Moses sings a song, we're told, to the people of Israel. When they get to the other side, he actually cries out these words, the Lord, Yahweh, is a warrior. There's a description of who He is and what He is. And then Yahweh is His name. So God says, it's my memorial name. You're going to link it with all the mighty things that I do. Now, in response to this new information that Moses has, immediately he's given instructions. God says, you know, now that you have the knowledge, you've got to go do, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Frankly, I could do with a few less ites as we do this. (laughs) To a land flowing with milk and honey. When you see elders, he's speaking of the various tribes of Israel. The 12 sons of Jacob who became the 12 tribes of Israel, they had leaders, and the leaders are referred to as elders. So God's saying, you're going to gather those leaders of the 12 tribes together. And Moses, along with those individuals, is to deliver God's message. And they're going to accompany him to go into the palace of Pharaoh. Question, how many of these slaves do you think have ever been inside Pharaoh's palace in their life? What an awesome experience for them. None, none except Moses has ever seen the inside of Pharaoh's palace. And yet they're supposed to accompany him and go inside and their eyes are going to be bug wide open. And God knows in advance exactly how they're going to respond. Verse 18, pay very close attention to this. They will pay heed to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So God's given a really simple thing. Moses, I just want you to make a simple request. Just three days. Just ask for a temporary leave from your work. Augustine writes that God deliberately put Pharaoh's request from lesser to greater. He gave them a really easy on-ramp, a simple request, but they got progressively harder as time went on. Why a simple beginning? Because God was giving Pharaoh this opportunity, every possible opportunity, to take what would be a really difficult decision and turn it for good. This is the most difficult decision of his political career. He's never been asked to do something like this. And God says, I know what his response is going to be. Go with me to verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. Just as God knows the elders and how they will respond, he knows the leaders of government, all the leaders of government. And he knows their heart, and he knows exactly what the reactions will be. God knows our hearts. He knows how we think, how we're wired, and he knows what it takes to move our hearts. So in light of this knowledge, Moses is cautioned. The same caution that you should pay attention to when Jesus says, I want you to go and do things. He says, Moses, I want you to know in advance he's going to reject you. 
So he's cautioned to recognize that whether or not they reject him, God is still with him. Don't misconstrue, Moses, your experience by thinking that means I'm not with you. I'm telling you that I'm with you. So don't misconstrue the rejection as a sign that I'm not there. Verse 21, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. God is simply preparing for the economic needs of this new nation. And he's fulfilling the promise to Abraham at the same time. What did God tell Abraham 400 years earlier? Look with me on the screen at this. Genesis 15, I will also judge the nation whom they they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. So what you find in Exodus is the fulfillment of one promise after another that God had made hundreds of years earlier. To the degree that verse 22 actually says, your children, they're going to be decked out with jewelry. They're going to be covered with gold and silver, and that's what it reads right there. But then comes chapter 4, and Moses asks a new question that seems to cross the line. Let's see if you agree. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Now that's the same type of question he's been asking earlier, trying to get out of this assignment. He's just coming at it from a different angle. So here, it's not an issue of self-confidence, but rather, he's essentially saying to God, I'm not sure I trust you. What if they don't believe me? What did God just say in chapter 3, verse 18? They will listen to you, Moses. Moses has just said, but what if they don't? He's just qualified it by hypothetically put in there, well, what if they don't? Not a total contradiction. Now, it's really easy for you and I sitting in a warm auditorium or at your home or at your workplace where it's very warm and comfortable right now, it's very easy for us to surmise why Moses is having such a hard time. He's been gone from Egypt for 40 years, so he's thinking no one's going to believe me. But then there's this, have you ever gone to a crowd of people and told them that God spoke to you through a bush? He's got to do that. He's got to go convince them that God has spoken to him through a bush. God's just about had enough of this conversation. And he's going to give him an ability to refute disbelief in a very powerful way. I know if many of you are familiar with this story, you're familiar with what's coming next with these signs, but pay very close attention to the detail of what's behind these signs. Chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. Can I just remind you that Moses is the one who wrote Exodus? And he's the one who's outing himself saying, yep, I ran. I wouldn't want to hang around that cobra. I was out of there. Now, ordinarily, a shepherd is carrying a walking stick, a staff. And and these are things that they refined over many, many, many years. They're usually quite tall, taller than the shepherd themselves. 
And they used it as a club. So while it might be narrow on the staff portion of it, there's usually a big knobby end on it. And they would use it to club wild animals who threatened their livestock. Those guys also got really good at tossing those things. They could throw it a long distance, much like a boomerang, trying to hit the thing that was threatening their sheep or their goats. It's a very humble tool. It's the tool of a shepherd. Let's contrast that. What is the symbol that is a representation of the strength of Egypt? Now, when you think of Egypt, many times people have what pops in their mind is a pyramid. That's not where we're going because that's not what they were thinking was the symbol of the strength of Egypt. I'm going to put on the screen for you an image of King Tut's face mask that was discovered in the early 1900s in the tomb. I want you to look at the very top of the crown, and what do you see at the forehead above King Tut's head? A cobra, a snake. Every single pharaoh had a snake at the front of their crown because it was a symbol of the strength of Egypt. Now remember, God says, I'm going to give you this sign, Moses, as a symbol of my strength for those in Israel who need to believe. It's one of the evidences that God actually appeared. And God says to Moses, we're going to let them see a shepherd's staff turned into a serpent, which is an image of the power of the strength of Egypt, and then it's going to transform back into a humble staff. It's not done. Watch Moses' response. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. Why? God says right here, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now normally, I'm not sure how you typically pick up snakes, assuming that you do. My wife's not picking up snakes. How many here don't like to pick up snakes? Pretty much the majority of us. If there's a snake in our yard, my wife is usually screaming running the other direction and asking me to deal with it. But that aside, typically when people pick up snakes, they don't pick them up by the tail, do they? They pick them up. That's right. Spot on. They pick them up by the head. They reach behind the head and grab them behind at the neck. Why? so they won't bite you. We instinctively know that if we grab them by the tail, they're going to swing around, coil themselves, and leave you a memory. I've had it happen. And so I know exactly what happens here. Yet God's instruction to this guy who spent 40 years in the wilderness chasing off wild beasts is, Moses, I want you to take this one by the tail which is further validating exactly the miracle that God has given them right before their eyes. How? God's saying to Moses, there's no fear in the snake. That snake can't harm you. Grab it by the tail. As though God has connected the serpent in front of Moses to the crown of Egypt and God taking Egypt by the tail and saying, there's no fear here, Moses. Let's go to the next image. Verse 6, the Lord furthermore said to him, put now your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. 
And he said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. When the Bible refers to the bosom, it's always talking about a person's side. When we hear about being at Abraham's bosom, it's talking about being at the side of the person. So God's saying to Moses, literally, put your hand inside your cloak at your side and pull it back out again. And then do it again, Moses, put it back into your bosom at your side, and then pull it back out again. Leprosy was feared by everyone. It's called the finger of God for a reason, because there's no known cure at this period of time. And every time leprosy came on the scene, it it meant rot. It meant death. Homes had to be burned, possessions, clothing had to be destroyed because leprosy was that infectious. Yet here we have instant healing, and the instant healing reflects the greatness of God's power over creation, especially and specifically over the human body. The power to take away health and the power to restore it again so that, as is recorded here, it's like the rest of his flesh, which is a huge warning to Pharaoh. This God, Pharaoh, He has the power to save or destroy with just a word or a gesture. But then God's not done yet. Go with me to verse 8. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign, but if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground." So we're seeing God's superior power in three very distinctive signs of a similar kind. Pay attention to this. At a word, a staff becomes a serpent, leprosy is inflicted, and water is destroyed. Power over the creatures, power over the human body, power over the elements, which, by the way, are the very same things that Jesus demonstrated power over, over, and over, and over, and over again, constantly validating His power source. What God is saying to Moses is, they may not heed you, Moses, and when He says that, literally He's saying, they may not listen to the voice of the signs. Look with me and let's break it down just for a moment. Look at verse 8. If they will not believe you or heed the witness, there's a Hebrew word that's in your notes this morning. If you pulled it out, you're going to see it on the screen as well. This particular word is kol, and and it means a loud voice to announce something. It actually, you see in the definition, refers to a cackle, like something that's so loud you have to pay attention to it. Just bear with me on this. Our English language does not easily capture the translation of what's being referred to here when God uses the word witness. He's saying there's a voice, and the voice of these miracles are going to place all of those who see these miracles in the action of being in a position of accountability, as though they had actually stood before the burning bush themselves and heard the voice of God. There's a witness going on here, a voice before them. What does the Bible teach us is going on around us right now? The Bible teaches us that there is natural revelation on this planet, that humans are constantly confronted by God 
through the voice of His Word and through the voice of His creation. Now link all of that together with the Nile River. The Nile River for decades has been the source of death. God created it to bring life to the people. But Pharaoh issued an edict. You're going to execute all of the male baby boys and you're going to throw them into the Nile River. And so this Nile River has been flowing with the blood of the innocents. And the river that God created became a witness to the slaughter of children. So just as in the early chapters of the book of Genesis when God saw that Cain killed Abel and he said, your brother's blood screams to me from the ground, so will the blood of the infants whose lives have been exterminated by Pharaoh, that blood is going to cry out. So with this third miracle, all of Egypt is going to know who the true God is. Because for hundreds and thousands of years, they've been worshiping the Nile as a god, a small g, and God's going to demonstrate who the God of creation really is. All of that registers with me. Unfortunately, Moses is still hung up on his own inability. Verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Hebrew language literally reads heavy of mouth, heavy of tongue, but there's no implication that he has some kind of a speech impediment. A lot of individuals who have done commentaries on the Bible try and pull out the fact that well, maybe he had a lisp or, or maybe he stuttered really bad. That there's no implication here that's indicating that. Rather, what you find Moses saying is, I'm not a fluent speaker. What's he referring to? He's been out of Egypt for 40 years. He spoke Egyptian, but he's been hanging out with the Midianites for 40 years. And he wasn't all that good at Hebrew because he was raised in the palace. So does he understand him? Yeah, but he's saying, God, I'm not that good. I can't speak eloquently. And if anybody knows what it means to speak eloquently before Pharaoh, it's Moses. He lived in the palace. So it doesn't seem to be indicating that he has a defective mouth, rather an inability to take command of the Hebrew language and the Egyptian language. But church, if God can make a cobra out of a stick of wood... If He can cause and take away leprosy, if He can turn water to blood, God can handle Moses' speech problems, amen? Absolutely can. So we find God saying this, verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Then now then go and even I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Really, really interesting that God refers to all the exact same things that Jesus did throughout the New Testament when He evidenced Himself of being able to make people speak, being able to help people to see, being able to help people to hear. The very things that God just said, who does that? Well, we'd have to say God. It's not that Moses lacks capacity. He lacks courage, church. So we find this in verse 13, but he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. That's a Hebraism for choose anybody but me, anybody but me. I don't want to be the one to go. And there's no reason stated for this reason. 
he's run out of excuses. He has no more excuses. Say amen if you agree with this. God is long-suffering. He is. He's incredibly patient. But there is a point when you can cross the line and you push God's patience too far, and there is a consequence when you decline the call of God on your life. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. And remember, I've told you that Moses is the writer of the book of Exodus. He's writing in the third person. Can you imagine standing there when you've just made God glowing mad? Ooh, and you can't leave? You're captive in front of him, and you have to stand there and face his fury? I don't know what physical evidence there is here. I, I don't know if the burning bush suddenly flames up like a, a hot air balloon. I don't know if that's what's going on, but here's what I do know. Moses is no longer hiding. He's been looking at cobras. He's been looking at leprosy. He's no longer hiding his face, and he realizes somehow he has just crossed the line. And my impression is this, whatever God's action is here that helps Moses know God's really ticked at me, it scared Moses, but God's not done yet. Go back to verse 14, and He said, "'Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart.' You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take your hand in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. My experience is, and I know this because I've experienced it in my own life, one of the most painful judgments that God can bring our way is when God lets us have our own way. You push and you push and you push and you strain against the leash and God finally lets it go, okay? You want your own way? I'll let you have your own way. His anger with Moses is not only reflected here in some visible way that's not recorded here, but it's evident in the result. Aaron will become this ongoing thorn in the flesh to Moses and a burden throughout the rest of his life. Ultimately, Aaron is going to lead the people of Israel into false worship and, and crafts a golden calf for the people. Now at this point, unexpectedly, the conversation at Sinai is complete. And for now, it quickly ends just as quickly as it began. And we don't get to hear what happened with the burning bush. Like, did it just stop? Did it go off like a light switch? We don't know. So my mind begins to wander. Okay, so Moses is making his way back home. Is he practicing by throwing the rod down? Snake. No snake. Snake. No snake. Is he putting his hand in his jacket? Leprosy. No leprosy. Leprosy. No leprosy. Oh, hi, honey. Guess what I did today? We don't know. We don't get any of the details of what's going on in the background there. Here's what we know. 
before God lets him go, he hits the bullet points again with Moses, and he says to him, you're going to perform these miracles before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh will harden his heart. And Pharaoh's refusal, as you're going to see next week, ultimately results in God aiming the crosshairs right at Pharaoh's own firstborn. But for now, to bring this to an end today, let's jump ahead to the final conversation that Moses has with the elders just before they go to see Pharaoh. Look with me on the screen. Chapter 4, verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people, so the people believed. And I'm wondering, right there, does Moses then regret arguing with God? They believed. He did what God told him to. And the people responded in belief. And so verse 31 becomes immediately very critical because what we see is the response to this knowledge of God's activity. Finish it out. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. Immediate natural response of humans who are being rescued is to worship the one who's rescuing them. That's why God said, when you come out to the mountain, you are going to worship me. Now, certainly the physical hardship they've been going through makes them really receptive. So whether or not the signs were even needed, the text has no comment whatsoever. All we were given is the word shema when they heard. And the word shema that's used here means they heard it intelligently. They processed everything that Moses was saying, and they gave ear to it, and therefore they're giving obedience to it. So it turns out that all of Moses' objections were completely unreasonable. Moses' fears nearly kept him from bringing the good news of God to a bunch of people who were in slavery. How does that relate to us today? Our fears keep us from telling people about Jesus. Our world, New Hope, is full of individuals who are brick-making slaves, if you'll allow the analogy, and they are consumed with despair. And at the same time, God is out here saying, I'm ready. I'm ready to rescue. I just need a messenger. I need someone to bring them the news. What do your friends need to hear? the very simple message that God truly sees them, God truly understands them, God knows them and wants the best for them. And the best for them is that they would be restored to Him through Jesus. If you've been here at New Hope for any length of time, you know for sure that you are equipped. You have been equipped with knowledge. So in this case, we don't want to be like Moses. Don't be like Moses and ask God to send someone else. Ask Him to fill your mouth with His words, with the message that your friends need to hear. You want a really easy, bold ask? Invite somebody in your social circle to Easter. Every year there's a survey done around the nation of people going to church around Easter time. And people widely who don't go to church say, yeah, I'd go if somebody would ask me to go to church on Easter. I'd do that. 
It's the easiest ask you'll ever get. So try it. Try and just be bold around that time. Here's the closing thought for you. I want you to consider the reality that, that when Moses was asked about his authority for communicating these things, the best he could say is this, I am sent me. But when Jesus is asked about his authority, he says, I am. Moses is sent by the I am. Jesus is the I am. And that one said this in Matthew chapter 28 as it relates to the church. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's the Great Commission. It's probably one of the most neglected commandments that God has ever given us. The Great Commission begins with, all authority is mine, that's God saying, I am that I am, and it ends with saying, I'm going to be with you, I'm with you always. So God's authority is linked with God's presence, and He says to us, I've got the power. I will work through you, now go and do what I've instructed. This is where, in the modern age, we typically recoil and say, you know, it works pretty good, but Moses had some pretty cool tools. We would look at that and say, if I had a chunk of wood that turned into a snake, yeah, I'd go talk to people. If I could make my hand turn into leprosy, I'd go talk to people. New Hope, you have something that Moses didn't have. God has given us a new identity to identify Him by. That identity is what we're supposed to use that is so powerful, it is the only identifier by which humans can be saved. Look with me on the screen. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That name is Jesus. Now, if you had a choice between throwing down a stick and turning it into a snake or having the power of that name by which people can be saved from hell, which would you choose? Well, I vote for Jesus every time. It's the name by which we can be saved, and I know many of you already are. It's the name above every name by which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray to Him. Father, I thank You for gathering us together to be equipped and challenged because Your Spirit is obviously working through this text. And You move in our hearts in ways that just we know when You're moving because it's uncomfortable. And so we squirm. So, Father, we're just like Moses. We have to admit we're often looking at our own capacity and not looking at Yours. So I would pray that this week as we take it on in the month ahead of us that you would cause us to be more bold on your behalf. I also pray that you would put your blessing on us for having studied your word this morning. Use it now in our life. Help us to speak into the lives of people who really need to hear about your rescue. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ our King and all God's people said, amen. If we haven't met yet, I'll be down here in the front after the service. Otherwise, have a great week, New Hope.